Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous type, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, and stickers on our Teespring store, so go check that out. Today on the show, we have Joey Nolan, a current master's student researching Atlantic and short-nosed sturgeon at the University of Georgia, Athens. He did his undergrad at Spring Hill College, where he was a volunteer at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab. And between completing his undergraduate studies and starting his master's, he worked at the Sport Fish Ecology Lab at the University of Illinois, the Bimini Shark Lab, and the Charlotte Harbor Field Lab of Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. That's a mouthful. Welcome to the podcast, Joey. Thank you, Elise. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I want to preface this interview by letting our listeners know that you and I met almost three years ago at the Bimini Shark Lab and bonded over our Midwest roots and sports rivalries. (laughs) Absolutely. I remember the first thing I said was I'm a Cubs fan and you booed me. Uh, No, I think it was the other way around. Well, that might be true. So I'd say we know each other pretty well by now, and it's pretty likely this interview will get silly. So uh, buckle up for that. We're going to start with some easy questions to set the stage. So what originally sparked your interest in fishery science? So broadly, probably the same thing that a lot of people say on the podcast in terms of, you know, very, very young I learned how to fish. My grandpa taught me how to fish, actually, and I spent a lot of summers fishing in a little John boat with him in uh, Midwestern lakes. Um, But as I grew up, I just, I loved two things. I loved dinosaurs and I loved fish. And I thought about paleontology for a little bit, um, but I figured it would drive me crazy if I was trying to base my life off of something like dinosaurs that I could never actually know what they looked like or ever actually touch one or anything like that. And so my, my personal goal has been to work with as many um, fish that are as old as possible, species are as, are as old as possible, which I got a pretty good list going right now between gar and sharks and bowfin, now sturgeon. So I'm kind of combining both fishery science and my, my love of dinosaurs in a way. That's what so many people say. And I feel like the more people that say it, the more I think maybe that's how I started liking sharks too, because I was also a dinosaur kid. But <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. You hear it a lot with people also in like the reptile world, right? Like, you know, sea turtles and crocodilians and things like that, which also how cool it'd be to work with them. So I'm hoping that before we get into like what you were also, I don't know, did you say you were from Illinois? I, don't I, don't think I said Midwestern lakes. Well, Joey's from Illinois and I'm from Wisconsin. So as you can imagine, Joey and I had some friendly beef for a while. We probably still have some friendly beef. Mainly just Chicago Cubs versus the Milwaukee <laughs> Brewers. Um, that's pretty much it. I don't, I don't mind the Milwaukee Bucks dominating the Chicago Bulls. Or, but if it was Packers Bears, we'd have a real issue. That's true. We won't even get into that. Let's go no. back to fish <laughs> before yeah, things get too, too testy. We can, we can agree on fish. <laughs> so 
I wanted to talk about some things that you did before you began your master's. How did you go from your fishing in Midwest lakes to doing marine research and ocean animal focus? So the first exposure I had to the ocean was um, I was a Boy Scout in high school. And there's something called uh, Sea Base, where the Boy Scouts have a base down in the Florida Keys. And uh, some of the people from my troop, we, we were able to go to Sea Base. And I thought that the ocean was just the most beautiful, crazy place ever. I saw mahi and wahoo, and we were in mangroves. And I got to be in crystal clear water for the first time, basically ever. You, you know how lakes are in the Midwest. Um, stuff like that. I thought that it was so crazy. Um, and talking about it when I came back to Illinois, I was very, very distantly linked to the Dauphin Island Sea Lab, um, where my brother's now wife, her friend's mom was the director of the Discovery Hall program at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab for high schoolers. So I knew about it. I found out about it, um, where they kind of help high schoolers get um, some hands-on experience in marine research and learn some marine research-related topics in classes and things like that, since that's not really a normal thing to learn in high school. Um, They had some targeted classes for it. And so when I was in high school, I applied to it, and I was accepted. And I spent a summer, I flew down to Dauphin Island in Alabama, and I spent a summer living in dorms and taking research classes and helping out professors with their research and learning all about it. I think it was between my junior and senior year. And at that point on, I kind of always knew I wanted to do fish and animal research. But at that point, that was when I was like, yeah, I, I really want to experience the coast as well. And I really want to get down there. And that was one of the reasons why I went to Spring Hill College, because it's a very small school. But I found out about it because of the fact that they had a partnership with Dauphin Island and they were only like 40 minutes away. So that helped me be able to, while I was there, reach out to the people at Dauphin Island and get experience taking research classes there continuing into my undergraduate years and then also volunteering with them. Awesome. So you did your undergraduate degree in? In marine biology. Okay, cool. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to assume. And then where'd you go from there? So when I graduated, I graduated on, I believe it was on a Sunday, and I immediately packed up all my stuff, and I moved directly from Mobile, Alabama, back to Illinois, which I know we were just talking about wanting to be on the coast, but at that point, I was really prioritizing getting good research experience, and like we talked about, gar and dinosaur fish were a draw. So um, the Sport Fish Ecology Lab had uh, a project that they were just starting up that they advertised the position for, which was doing short nose gar acoustic telemetry. And so I applied there and was accepted to that job. And immediately when I graduated, packed up all my stuff and moved straight to um, Champaign, Illinois. And I spent the next eight months working as a technician on that job, deploying receivers in um, these fast moving rivers. And then we had to do a whole method study on just proving that we could internally tag short nose gar with acoustic tags because that had never been done before. And so I mainly just, I moved there for the job. You know, I knew it wasn't going to be somewhere that I wanted to be, but I really wanted that experience of being in on a project on the ground level and getting super hands-on experience. And so I just got a 
a job application one day or a, an advertisement and I went for it and moved there immediately. So what were you doing with GAR then? You know, I know you said it was an acoustic telemetry project, but can we get into that a little bit more? Yeah, so that was that was the biggest aspect. It wasn't the only thing that the lab did, but it was the biggest aspect of what they needed help with where you know, with with short nose gar, they're seen as kind of a trash fish. All gar are seen as relatively like trash fish, um, just because you know there's this misconception that they they eat sport fish, um, they eat juvenile sport fish, they eat people's largemouth bass and stuff like that. So they've been seen as kind of trash fish, and because of that, no one ever really wanted to research them. Um, it's kind of changing now, but people didn't really want to research them. So very basic questions like, where do gar move? Like there's gar all over the place, but do they just sit there? Like, are there, are there gar everywhere in the river? Or is this, when you're in one stretch of river, could the gar move from that stretch to the other stretch kind of thing? So because of that, we did the first, um, to our knowledge, the first internal tagging study for short-nosed gar, where you have to get through those ganoid scales, and then you get through the musculature of the gar, and then you internally plant a tag, and then you sew up the gar and... We had to do a whole method study where we had to prove that the gar could survive, how much acquiesce it would take to uh, anesthetize the gar, what kind of healing rates they would have. We needed to put them in experimental tanks to see what kind of healing rates they, they exhibited, things like that. And then when the whole method study was done, that was the main part of the summer. Then when we moved into the fall, we started going out and partnering with the field labs there uh, for the Illinois Natural History Survey. And we started fike netting for gar out in the in the field, and we started tagging them out in the field. And we had really interesting ways to deploy receivers in these really really fast moving rivers. And so we had to deploy these receivers on these giant rigs and everything. And so it was really interesting to do for sure. But yeah, it was it was a very basic question of broadly, how do gar move? Where do they move? Do they move? How far do they move? How fast do they move? Very, very basic questions because people didn't really ask very many questions about GAR even just five years ago. Nice. So then from what I understand, from there you started at Bimini Shark Lab? Yeah. So while I was there, I applied to be an intern at the Bimini Shark Lab and I was accepted to be an intern during my technician job. And I was really fortunate where the the U of I job was only supposed to be a summer, but they ended up extending me because we knew when my deadline was for leaving for Bimini. So they extended me the full eight months until I left. And so then just like with moving straight from undergrad to my job at U of I, I moved directly from the job at U of I. I packed up for winter break, brought all my stuff back to my parents' house. And then I celebrated Christmas with my family and then left all my stuff in my parents' basement and uh, and flew to Bimini. And you worked as just a like a regular volunteer there, right, at first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was one of the ground-level volunteer interns where we did all kinds of interesting stuff. Where I, I chose my time window there on purpose where I knew in the winter that was when the great hammerheads would migrate through. And I knew that Vital Heim was there as a PhD student studying the hammerheads. And so I was really interested in seeing his research. And then I knew that if I did six months and ended in the summer, they would have their pit project where they go out in gillnet at night for all the juvenile lemon sharks they can catch in their, in their Northern nursery. 
And so I knew that I could encompass both of those kind of trademark Bimini Shark Lab things if I went there for that window of time. I got to be a part of a lot of really cool stuff in doing that. I got to help out with the Hammerhead Project. I got to help out with all of their normal long line survey data. I got to help out with their pit project where they were catching just as many juvenile lemon sharks as they could as they could get their hands on. And being one of the experienced interns, I got to take a leadership role with that, which I was very proud to do. And then also, Clementine White was there doing her um, her behavioral trials with with lemon sharks, and so in doing that and being there for as long as I was, I got to help out with setting that stuff up as well. So I, I, I got to do a lot of things in being there, especially for the window I was there. I was really, really lucky and fortunate to be a part of all that. So eventually you moved back to the Shark Lab after your volunteer position as a staff member, but what were you doing in between? So the same exact thing as before, as I was in my job with the Bimini Shark Lab, I, I think you're just the king of lining things up in advance. <laughs> I, I have. I was pretty obsessive about putting feelers out, and I had no shyness at all with just emailing people who I had never met, or emailing people emailing people who didn't know me, or just I'd find labs that I really liked online, and I would just email them, and I would just say, "Hey, my name's Joey Nolan. This is what I'm interested in. This is how I think what you do and what I like." aligns here's a resume like is there any is there any space for me working with you in any capacity and so i did that with the charlotte harbor field lab at fwc because they have really really cool stuff going on there more so than just their regular monitoring stuff they've got a sawfish research program there they've got they do stuff in coastal ponds with tarpon they do stuff with juvenile snook all kinds of really interesting things going on there and so once again, I, I sent an email out to them and lo and behold, they sent me an email back saying, you know what, we do have, we do have availability coming up. Why don't we have a Zoom call? And so one of my last days in Bimini, I had a Zoom call with them. And right when I got, right when like the plane touched down basically, and I was on my way back to my house uh, outside of Chicago, I had a second interview, one of my first days back at my parents' house had that second interview. And at the end of the second interview, they offered me the job. So I then packed all my stuff, grabbed all my stuff out of my parents' basement that I put there right before I went to Bimini and drove it all down, all the way down to Port Charlotte, Florida. And I worked there on the West Coast for, I think it was about a year, maybe a year and a half before before the Bimini Shark Lab offered me a, a position of uh, being a staff member there. Okay. So let's, let's talk about your staff role at the Bimini Shark Lab because these are the things that I was around for <laughs> yeah yeah that was when i went back and yeah that was when that was when we met that was an interesting time to be there as you know because of everything with covid that was that was right in the middle of it all uh there was a lot of restrictions we both had to jump through in order to a lot of hoops to jump through before we could even get to the island or be in the lab together a lot of tests a lot of covid tests i administered a lot of covid tests as you know yeah, you definitely, you swabbed my nose. That was my, <laughs> one of our first conversations. As, as, a, uh, as the assistant lab technician, or whatever my role ended up being, that was uh, one of my jobs, yeah, was I was one of the first people back to start the year. And so I was good to go where I got to the lab and then, you know, waited five days, tested myself, and I was clean. And so I had to go around 
testing everybody so they could get back into the lab where everybody would fly in. And then after five days, I had to go around and I was meeting all these people while they had masks on. And I was like, hey, my name's Joey. Let me see your nose. And uh, <laughs> I swabbed all kinds of people and we broke down barriers immediately, uh, personal personal space boundaries and all kinds of stuff. We had to break that down immediately and really promoted bonding between the group, I think. You were also the person who like set us free out of our quarantine bubbles. You'd be like, yeah, all right, you're yeah. good, let's go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're I was, going. <laughs> I was associated with that very good memory of being told, you can come back to the lab now. <laughs> so that was, we had a pretty interesting time there because we had uh, some limitations on what we were able to do. Yeah, yeah. With with the permitting issues, a lot of people experienced a lot of permitting and funding issues because of COVID, whether it was a lot of restrictions were placed on where people could go and what what people could do, how many people could be on a boat at a time, which would restrict a lot of things. A lot of research was scaled back at that time. And so the Bimini Shark Lab was no exception. You know, the Bahamas had very strict rules about what research could be going on at that time. And so because of that, the, the, the hands-on field experience, that kind of took a step back and I got the chance to learn a, a whole new other suite of things like how to take care of a field lab, you know, and in the meantime. So it was a lot of stuff about taking care of the field lab, a lot of boat maintenance, which was something that I, I was sorely lacking in for somebody who was on boats so much. I, I was telling everybody while we were there, you know, a lot of the, the things that are really important, I've, I've had a lot of potential advisors tell me that the things that can't be taught are what's most important for labs, like lab dynamics. How are you as a person? What kind of personality do you have? How do you get along with others? How do you work with others? Those are the things that you can't teach. Field skills, statistical skills, writing skills, to a degree, advisors can help you learn that. Bosses can help you learn that, but they can't help you with your attitude. So that was something that we we all got very much hands-on experience of having good attitudes in the face of frustrating situations, I think. Yeah, I guess I have, I, yeah, I have thought about it that way <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but I think yeah. it was a huge challenge. I was doing a project at the time and then halfway through it, they were like, psych, not doing that project anymore. I think so yeah. many people are like just had this random surprise thrown in their face that like everything they went there to do was no longer going to be happening. I mean, we could have all been just angry at the lab together, 20 people, but <laughs> I feel like we yeah. figured out how to like still make the most of our time. Yeah. I mean, I thought that everybody who was doing projects at the time, everybody did a really good job with, you know, everybody was dealt a difficult hand and everybody pivoted in the best way that they could. And I think that that's really valuable because of the fact that, you know, in my graduate work right now, I'm not dealing with COVID, but I can tell you that it doesn't go exactly as you planned. So everyone has a reason of why they have to pivot from one project to another or one topic to another or one mode of thinking to another. The, the mechanism behind why you make that change mid-project, that's definitely never the same. But I think it'd be very, it'd be very difficult to find a project that was exactly the way you expected it to be from start to finish. I think that everybody learned a really valuable skill in 
pivoting from one data set to another or from one theory to another, or from one type of field work to another. I saw you do a lot of really, really thorough, in-depth data analysis. That was something that, um, you know, when I was there as an intern, it was all hands on deck in the field every single day, which was fantastic. But I definitely left without analysis skills, which is to be expected when you go have an internship at a field lab. I admired the way that you went about doing everything with the way, you know, they kind of looked at you and said, your research is a little bit different now, but here's data that we have and here's the opportunity in front of you and what are you going to do with it? And you took it and ran with it. So I think that that was, there's something to be said for that regardless of what you thought it was going to be beforehand. Well, thank you. (laughs) That's nice. If you're a Brewers fan, you did nice. Uh, (laughs) 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 So I think that's kind of a good segue because I knew you, what, for the last three years now, which is weird. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it does not feel like three years, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so almost three years ago. And even then, like, you knew that you wanted to go to grad school. And I know that before I met you, you wanted to go to grad school. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about pivoting. (laughs) So I'm interested in hearing about, like, kind of your journey to grad school and how you got to where your project is now. Like you said, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school even when I was when I was an undergrad and I was volunteering at Dauphin Island. I really admired the graduate students who were conducting the research that I was volunteering with and helping with. Every every step of the way, every every set of graduate students I've ever worked with, you know, I had I had a lot of respect for them and I always looked at them as, you know, I want to be in that in that role someday and and then someday I'm going to have technicians and interns and I hope to be as influential for them as, as the grad students have been for me that who I've worked with. So when I was an undergrad and I was, I was speaking with the graduate students and with the professors at Dauphin Island, they really encouraged me get some work experience, at least for a year, get some work experience, build up your, your knowledge base. So at the very broad scale, you know, this really is the field for you. And even if you know, it is the field for you, get some work experience into knowing what science you really like and what you want to go for, for graduate school, um, what, what you want to specialize in for graduate school or what you think at least, because obviously you can go to graduate school and, and things can still change, but, but you can have a direction to go in. Um, and you can be well-informed when you go and you approach potential advisors, because that's really important. So I, that was one of the reasons why I didn't really even look at graduate school as an undergrad. I was only looking for jobs my senior year. And really, while I was in Bimini, that was when I was applying both to graduate positions, or at least inquiring about graduate positions, and then also, also jobs. It was definitely tough. It was definitely a struggle because I was speaking with a lot of potential advisors about, I mean, not a lot, but what felt like a lot to me, more than one, uh, potential advisors about maybe joining the lab. And right around that time was really when COVID started. And so around that time was when COVID started kind of shutting things down and people started losing funding and, you know, projects started collapsing schools started having a harder time accepting students and funding students, things like that. And so you're right. I did a lot of pivoting in terms of, I I spoke to a lot of advisors who, you know, they thought they were going to have funding and then the funding 
evaporated for XYZ reason, or, you know, I was speaking with a lot of advisors who didn't have funding in hand yet, but really wanted that funding. And, and they said that I would be a very competitive person for the project. And I was kind of naively banking on them getting funding or hoping they would get funding. And then, you know, life would happen. Funding would not come to them, things like that. And also what was, what I think allowed me to be very selective and be choosy about it was the fact that I had jobs that I really liked in the meantime. And so I, I didn't feel the need to leave where I was to go to graduate school. So that allowed me to kind of pick and choose and cherry pick things that I really liked and honestly go for very competitive positions, which led to me searching for a very long time. And yeah, like I said, it definitely didn't help that the vast majority of the time I was applying to graduate school was during COVID times, during very tough funding climates, during very stringent funding budgets and everything. And so it was something that I really wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to go somewhere that I was just crazy passionate about the research going on there and that it was really important to me to find good lab dynamics, really important to me to find a good advisor, advisee dynamic and so I didn't apply to everything I saw, and I only reached out to a handful of people that I had heard really good things about and, you know, things like that. I was trying to be as selective as possible while I had a good job and everything. And uh, that led me to applying to um, my, my current position was actually advertised as a PhD assistantship. And I just, I emailed, but I really, really liked it. And I thought that it was a good fit for me, both in the topics that were going to be addressed and the program and everything. And so I reached out to who is now one of my co-advisors, Dr. Marty Hamill. I reached out to him as his email was on the advertisement. And I said, Hey, is there any way you would, you would change this for me? Because uh, I don't feel good about going straight into a PhD, but this is something that I think is really right up my alley. And I think I'd be good at it. And he emailed me back and said, actually, we are looking to hire a master's in conjunction with this PhD. So let's have a Zoom call. And I don't think I actually even sent in real application materials when all was said and done, where like, I just included my CV. And then that was kind of it. Because I didn't know if I was sending in a full application or not, because I didn't know if they could make it a master's or not. And so they just said, hey, yeah, let's, let's have a chat. And so I had, I had a Zoom call with both Marty and my other co-advisor, Dr. Adam Fox. And we just got along really well right off the bat. And uh, yeah, like you said, we kind of pivoting where I I had been speaking with a few different potential advisors for a couple of years about trying to join their lab whenever the funding came through. And then this was really quickly, like it was advertised. I sent the email and within the month I was hired. And that was the first time I'd ever spoken to Marty or Adam. We just knew right away. It was a really good match. Awesome. So let's now talk about the actual project that you're working on between those two advisors. Yeah. So Adam has been, Adam's lab has been doing coastal sturgeon research in Georgia for the better part of 20 years. And Marty is relatively newer to the University of Georgia, but he's been doing fisheries research and fisheries ecology and fisheries management research for quite some time now. He was at Nebraska before now. Um, but the the common link between them was always sturgeon. Adam doing Atlantic and short nose sturgeon, and then Marty up in Nebraska was doing pallid and shovel nose sturgeon. 
And now in conjunction with his coastal surgeon, he's still still doing lake sturgeon stuff here in Georgia. So um, the the project is kind of where both of their sciences collide, where Adam has done, he got his PhD doing acoustic telemetry with juvenile Atlantic sturgeon. And Marty has done a lot of microchemistry analysis to look at fish movement uh, using fish hard structures and then comparing the microchemistry signature in water to the fish structure and creating backtracks of fish movement. And so we're kind of taking that dual approach to looking at the movement of coastal sturgeon, both short nose and Atlantics, to look at their movement, both with telemetry and then also the, the microchemistry. And in particular, we're, we're interested in asking with subadult Atlantic sturgeon, we know a lot about this lab has done a lot of juvenile recruitment and recruitment and how it relates to environmental parameters, things like that. And we've done a little bit of spawning research with, you know, big adult Atlantic sturgeon and with adult short nose sturgeon. But there's a little bit of a gray area in between. A lot of people are tagging very big Atlantic sturgeon and watching them migrate all over the coast. But there's a little bit of a gray area where we know they're, they're in river juveniles and they don't have a saltwater tolerance. And then when they're adults, they leave at some subadult stage, um, somewhere between two and six years old. And then when they go out into the estuary, they become anadromous fish where they live their lives out in saltwater and come back to spawn. How much mixing goes on? We know it happens. We've seen a lot of movements of fish, uh, both Atlantic surgeon from northern latitudes coming here and vice versa. We've seen genetically, there's a lot of mixing going on with subadults and adults in mixed stock aggregations. But the actual directionality and proportionality of those movements, that's what we are interested in because it's a really interesting and important ecological process to describe and life history stage to describe. But also it has really direct management implications for an endangered species with these Atlantic sturgeon. When they cross jurisdictional boundaries, they're managed on the distinct population segment basis, but they don't know that. So they don't know that there's jurisdictional boundaries for what is a South Atlantic Atlantic sturgeon versus a Carolina's Atlantic sturgeon. And so there's a lot of mixing that goes on and how that mixing might impact their, their exposure to mortality risks between DPSs. That's a really important question, both ecologically and managerially. So we're asking that question with telemetry, with Atlantic sturgeon, and then with short-nosed sturgeon, even less is known about them, and they're even more endangered and have been endangered for even longer. They were a charter member of the very first Endangered Species Act back in the 70s, and we really don't know very much about their life history at all. Very similarly, we know that they spawn way upriver, the juveniles cannot tolerate salt, but then once they're a little bit bigger and they're subadults or adults, we know that they can tolerate salt water, but we know they're, they're capable of going out into salt water, but how much do they go out into salt water? Do they make repeat migrations out into salt water? How much time do they spend in salt water? All kinds of very basic questions like that. We, there's a very big information gap. And so microchemistry is the perfect way to get at looking at very broad life history strategies. There's a lot of, there's a lot of papers out there right now, really good papers about looking at life history strategy with microchemistry. And so we're hoping to kind of look at our short nose sturgeon populations across the Georgia coast and figure out how many life history strategies are there and what's the proportionality of it 
inter and intra river for these populations. And so that's, those are the main questions. I know that you started this project relatively recently. Do you, do you have any results of the project yet or just more questions? <laughs> well, so I just did my first summer of field work. So really it kind of just created more questions. Like you're saying where for the first time I went out and actually caught sturgeon because I came in to the lab uh, for the spring semester. And so I had my first semester of classes without ever even seeing a sturgeon, or at least a, 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 an anadromous sturgeon or a coastal sturgeon. I'd never even seen a coastal sturgeon. The only sturgeon I'd ever seen was lake sturgeon at like the shed aquarium. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so all my questions and all my curiosity came from just reading papers and reading species descriptions and management plans and things like that, which are all essential to formulating interesting questions. I really just got done with my first summer of data collection and we're not too far into the data analysis portion of everything yet, but we have a lot of very interesting questions. And uh, like I said, I'm, I, my main thing is I'm just really hopeful. I'm really proud and hopeful to be doing these projects because of the fact that, you know, with the, Atlantic Surgeon Subadult Project, we get to partner with South Carolina Department of Natural Resources and the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And so because of the fact that between the three of us, we are expecting to see some mixing and we're expecting to see some really interesting things. And my main thing is I came into this project really wanting to learn. I had seen so much research and I had learned so much about what's out there and what kind of things are possible with telemetry data, with microchemistry data, with population abundance data, with all these different forms of data. And although we don't have results, I have ideas about how I want to analyze what I am predicting we might see, you know, which obviously mm -hmm. we're talking about setbacks or, or being thrown for loops and everything. So there's a great chance I don't see what I'm expecting to see. But I'm really excited to start getting our data back. And I mean, you know, with telemetry, it's kind of like you lack a lot of information before you do your downloads. And then you get a ton of information all at once when you do go, when you go and download your receivers. So unfortunately I don't have very many results, but I just, I'm just very excited about um, the implications of the projects where these are endangered species that have had a lot of research done on them as far as their biology and whatnot, but it's filling really basic, but very, very critical knowledge gaps in their life history and everything. Um, check back in with me in a little while, maybe, maybe in a year or so. And uh, I fully intend to have some <laughs> ground shattering results that are uh, just the stuff of scientific dreams. <laughs> I hope you do. I mean, you like you said, it's like, it's basic information, but it's like the basic information that is foundational to managing species. So yeah, it's, it's super important information to have. I mean, people talk about it a lot with, with um, movement studies where people always say, like, for example, people talk a lot nowadays about marine protected areas. Although the area is protected, there's no walls there keeping the animals into that area. And so if the species is protected in that area or if, if management plans are different from one area to another, um, as they often are, 
whether it's, you know, certain species cross oceans to get to different countries where it's different or just crossing state boundaries or basically the animals don't know that they are protected or they're not protected when they move from one place to another. So it's really important to know where they go because if you want to, if you want to protect an animal or if you want to manage it properly and you only do it in part of where it's going to be in its life, it's a very basic thing to know, but it makes all the difference in the world to whether or not you manage it properly or if you just ecologically understand it and describe it properly and you can intellectually talk about it properly. See, now you got me thinking about stingrays. <laughs> it's never like, a bad time to think about stingrays. When are stingrays. people going to care about stingrays? <laughs> it always comes back to stingrays with me. Sorry. No. I love sturgeon, though. I really do. When I don't know if you know this, but when I was on the fisheries podcast, when I was the guest instead of the host... I said my favorite fish was lake sturgeon. sturgeon. That's right. I didn't didn't want to interrupt you, but I wanted you to know that I did know that. I I did. I knew that that was your your favorite species, and I thought that was wild. I was ready. I was ready for you to say stingray or Atlantic stingray. I was ready for you to throw anything out there. That was not what I was expecting, but you know what? I I, I was in my car, and I gave a fist bump, just so you know. (laughs) Yeah, I, they're so weird. I just love them. I mean, one of the things I love to tell people when they ask me about sturgeon and why I love them so much is we're talking about dinosaurs and everything. Atlantic sturgeon as a species are over 170 million years old. So they were alive. And Atlantic sturgeon that like a dinosaur in the Jurassic period looked at, looked the exact same. Mm-hmm. They looked at the same species as I'm looking at today which I think is wild. You know, it really is combining paleontology and marine biology in my mind because it's marine biology of today, but it is with the same Atlantic surgeon you would have researched 170 million years ago with dinosaurs. And we still don't have the basic questions answered. We have very it's about much- time. <laughs> we have, uh, yeah, they've just been waiting. They've been waiting for me, but um, <laughs> they... Uh, They are the animals that produce caviar. And so to that end, money talks and a lot of very wealthy people have wanted to know how to get Atlantic sturgeon stocks back up and how to understand them properly and how to understand their biology properly. Because when their stocks collapsed because of the massive overfishing that they experienced for meat and caviar, Obviously, people wanted to know how to get them back so they could profit from them again. So a lot of research happened. It's very odd where when I started working with Atlantic sturgeon and short nose, it was odd how how much research has gone on with them and yet what kind of data gaps are still there. And that's not because researchers haven't done an amazing job researching them. They have. The thing is, they just live very, very complex lives. They're anadromous fish that have several distinct life history stages and several distinct life history strategies and whatnot as you go from north to south latitudinally because up north, northern Atlantic sturgeon live different lives than southern Atlantic sturgeon. And so there's just so much to know. There's so much to learn. And so even though amazing research has been done on them, and I never worked with them before, so I had so much to learn. I'm just reading paper after paper after paper, and I was just constantly feel like I, feeling like I was barely scratching the surface. And there's so many exceptions to these rules because, like you said, sturgeon are so weird that, like, 
this population does this, but then the, the exception is here. And then the exception to that is here. And, you know, it's just, it was just crazy and really, really awesome and a really good experience to have sturgeon be my study species for my master's because it's teaching me a lot about how to properly find scientific literature and browse through it, create annotated bibliographies, understand the how to work your way through the scientific literature and find what you need to know, identify the knowledge gaps to create something that my project was not set in stone before I got here. I had the freedom and ability to speak with both of my advisors and and formulate questions that were interesting to all three of us and everything. So um, it's been a really good experience to do that where, you know, like you said, they're very, they're very data deficient in very, very interesting areas, yet so much has been done with them. But still, there's so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pumped. I want to see a live sturgeon one day. Like, well, I've seen live sturgeon, but in aquariums. <laughs> I want to see one in the wild. Hey, if you uh, come down to the coast where, you know, here here in Georgia with the way that we sample, um, we use trammel and gill nets. And with our trammel nets, you know, it's 12-inch stretch by 3-inch stretch by 12-inch stretch. Um, and then we have gill nets that are um, randomly ordered panels of 3-inch mesh for about 100 feet, 4-inch mesh for about 100 feet, and then 6-inch mesh for about 100 feet. And so with all these different meshes and in these areas that have so many sturgeon, we catch sturgeon of all sizes and we catch both Atlantic and short nose, which a lot of, not a lot of people can say that um, because uh, short nose sturgeon in a lot of places outside of Georgia are doing very, very poorly. Like the whole middle of their historical range, they, they're completely extirpated from several rivers. So if you come down to Georgia, we'll put you on some sturgeon for sure, at least. Don't worry. We can put you on some that are 250 millimeters long and 2,500 millimeters long. Well, actually, you know, maybe not that big. Maybe not that big. But somewhere in that range, you, you get the idea. We'll put you on babies that you can hold in one hand. And we'll put you on adults that three people struggle to, to hold. Speaking of babies, I released a baby sturgeon into Lake Michigan. That's right. I think I told you about that. Yeah. You it was were, amazing. And I thought about you. I was like, Joey would love this. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I've never seen a lake sturgeon in the wild. I know that they're they're crazy too. Um, they're hard to see. They live on the bottom, you know? Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's crazy that like, I don't know, like you can be in relatively shallow water and stuff and be shocked when you catch a sturgeon even when you, you feel like you should have seen it or something. But yeah, I don't know. I'll tell you, they're pretty easy to see, though, when they jump like six feet out of the water. That's pretty easy to see. Or at least here, if you're looking the other way, when they land in the water. Someday. I'll see it someday. That's right. We'll start, we'll start a whole campaign to get you down to Georgia to see this. <laughs> campaign. Like I'm running for public office or something. That's right. Vote for release. <laughs> So I think that we're at a good point now to start going into our final five questions. Um, so the final five is a group of questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. I think it's harder than the other questions, but it's allegedly the easy part of the interview. No, I think, 
I think it is difficult. All right. Oh, yeah. Also forgot to tell everybody, Joey is a longtime <laughs> listener of the Fisheries Podcast. So he's very familiar with these final five questions. Yeah. But now you get before to answer you them yourself. No pressure. Before, before you even were a host, I, was, I always wondered what I would say. And I was always like, why would I ever even need to know? I don't need to worry about it. And here I am. I did not spend enough time worrying about it. Well, here's your time. Your time is here. It's now. Here we go. All right. What's your favorite fish? Hmm. All right. Well, I don't think this is going to be a huge surprise to you. Um, but one fish we have not talked about yet. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite fish has got to be tarpon. Yep. I love tarpon for all the reasons that we already said. Another prehistoric fish and absolutely ancient lineage and they also live crazy lives i mean that was the main draw for me at fwc where you know working with i got to work with those tiny juveniles in the in the nurseries um and studying out migration um things like that but they just they're absolutely crazy and to see them to see them up close is just they're such a sight to behold. We, we caught a big one while drift netting for adult Atlantic sturgeon. And I got to say, it might've been one of my, it was definitely one of my favorite parts of the summer, despite all the sturgeon we caught. But yeah, I would have to say Atlantic tarpon. Sweet. Yeah. Tarpon. Not surprising to me at all. Cause I've, I don't, we've talked extensively about tarpon, but, <laughs> and your love for them. I think fish base now doesn't call them Atlantic tarpon. So you'll have to edit out the part where I said Atlantic tarpon. <laughs> hmm. I won't, but it's okay. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so you're going to be a loser. So um, what is your favorite memory from your career so far besides catching the tarpon? Well, to just pick one, cause I have, you know, whole blocks of time, like my past summer, um, in Georgia doing everything, um, and doing my own research for the first time. But I don't think that counts as a single memory because that was like a three month block. I would say while I was with FWC, I got to take a research trip to the Everglades. And that research trip was, that was, that, that kind of experience is why you get into marine biology. You know, I mean, we, we lived on a houseboat for the week. Um, I really liked the guys that I was down there with. We caught everything you could want to catch in the Everglades. We caught tarpon, snook, juvenile goliath grouper, triple tail. I had never really been to the Everglades or at least in the back country there. So it was just amazing to see the sunrise and the sunset. And uh, we saw crocodiles everywhere. We saw Burmese python, a giant sawfish, um, you know, stuff like that. So I think that research trip to the Everglades that's probably my, my favorite memory so far. Yeah, that sounds fun. But what is your dream job or location? I don't think that I have a dream location because I think I would be much happier with a dream job in almost any location, if that makes sense. I think that I would just want my job to be, I don't know, fish biologist or overall broadly like animal i really like studying animal behavior like these life history strategies of these sturgeon and everything looking at animal behavior and whether it's movement or social dynamics or 
responses to certain things or to certain stimuli, like the projects that I've had that have dealt with that kind of thing, I've been really, really happy and really mentally engaged during those studies. And so I think some sort of animal or fish behavioral ecologist would be the way. And if I got a a job that I loved, I would go anywhere to do a job that I love. I feel the same. I feel like when you study migratory animals, like you just kind of have to be cool with that. You got to embody what it is to be a migratory animal yourself. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. So if money were not an issue, what's one project you'd love to work on? I think that it's hard to decide between I have, I have two ideas. One of them would be, I would love to like, if you could implant a really, really, I don't know how this isn't realistic, but you know, with any amount of money ever, somebody would probably come up with it. Mm -hmm. But if you could find a way to get a really, really small tag that had an indefinite amount of battery life, or at least a super long time, right? Because a lot of these animals that we're talking about, like sturgeon and tarpon and stingrays and sharks, you know, it's really, really difficult to know that you understand its entire life or when it gets big enough that you can actually tag it with a substantial tag to learn over a very large time scale, you, you have missed a very large part of its life um, to get to that size. And so if you could go somewhere, if you could get a small tag that had as much time on it as you could want, uh, that would be, that would be the dream. Or I got to say, if, if you could put like a, like a glider in the water to pick up acoustic tags anywhere, you know Ooh, what I'm talking about? Bring the, bring the receiver to them. Exactly. Because That's there's all, good these, idea. <laughs> there are all these animals that are getting acoustically tagged that are not in range of listening stations. So if you could slap a receiver on like a drone that could go in the water and you can make it do transects anywhere in the world. And then you, I I could not imagine the animal you'd pick up making these crazy migrations and stuff that are not known at the moment because you can't get a receiver to where the animals are. So if you could bring the receiver to the animals, I'm sure someone's thought of that, but. I mean, it's kind of like active tracking, but like it's not actually active because you don't actually have to go out and do it. Yeah. Someone's going out and do it. It's just not you. It's the drone. Yeah. It's the, it's the robot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That sounds awesome. That's a super cool idea. Okay, last question. If there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think it would be, especially if you want to be in fishery science, to not have preconceived notions about different opportunities and just be open to everything. Because like we've talked about, um, I feel like, I've heard this exact kind of thing on this podcast, but it really is true that like we talked about with changing the trajectory of what you're working on or where you're going, where you think you want to know, you think you know what species you want to work with, or you think you know where you want to go for grad school, or you think you know how you want your project to go. And you have all these reasons why it's the perfect path for you or the perfect situation for you. Like I said, I had no idea that I was going to be at UGA. I had no idea I'd be in this lab or I'd be advised by these advisors. I was speaking to different advisors for years before these ones. And I couldn't imagine being happier than where I am right now with these advisors. I have a great relationship with them. I have a great relationship with my lab mates and I'm very mentally stimulated by my, um, by my projects. And so being open to anything and being willing to just go take advantage of every opportunity in front of you, it's sometimes scary, but it's the beauty of being in, fishery science where you can drop everything and move to 
wherever the opportunity is, Alabama to Illinois to Florida to Bimini to Florida to Bimini to Georgia, wherever, you know? Yeah, that's awesome advice. I feel like it's easy to kind of like laser focus on one thing. Yeah. And it's, then it's never actually like move. I don't know. Like it's it's possible to move forward that way too, but. It's, it's a fine line between being open to things and being able to pivot when it's healthy and good for you to do that and having a stick to it type of attitude and being as tenacious as you can to get done what you want to get done. There's, there's, it's a fine line where, you know, you want to be as, as dedicated and motivated as possible to make things happen for yourself, but you also need to be able to pivot between things and make sure that you are never leaving any opportunity out on the table. You want to take advantage of everything. Absolutely. Well, Joey, thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I was very excited and I'm, I'm honored that you thought of me because I know you know a lot of incredible scientists and everything. So I was honored that you wanted to talk to me. Well, you're one of them. So yeah, of course. Oh my. Thank you so oh much. <laughs> the, the viewers can't see that I'm blushing. <laughs> um, if people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? So my school email is joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H dot Nolan, N-O-L-A-N at uga.edu. I've been trying to get better about putting sturgeon things and fish things on my Instagram. And so you can always follow me on that. It's underscore Joey Nolan. And if you're interested in the really interesting sturgeon work that my labs are doing right now, you can always look up Adam Fox. Uh, one of my advisors is uh, his website is Fox Lab UGA. And um, Marty Hamill also has uh, a website for his lab here at UGA. And so a lot, all of our research, not only mine, but theirs and their other students are on their websites and are definitely worth checking out. And Adam has a, um, a lab Instagram as well. Awesome. Um, if listeners want to get a hold of me or any of the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Fisheries Pod or via email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, be open to unexpected opportunities.